The Commonwealth Club of California congratulates the class of 2021. We know how much you want to stay connected with the issues and influencers that matter most. That's why we are offering all high school and college graduates in the class of 2021 a free one-year membership to the club. From politics to social justice, climate to pop culture, membership at the Commonwealth Club opens up new worlds of learning and the chance to interact in person and online with today's headline makers and people like yourselves who care about what's going on in the world. Claim your free membership at commonwealthclub.org slash grads. And join us. We look forward to seeing you at the club. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello and good evening. Welcome to tonight's program, The History of the Pixel, with Pixar co-founder Alvy Ray-Smith. I'm John Bolden, President Emeritus of KQED Public Media and Vice Chair of the Commonwealth Club Board of Governors. I'm pleased to be moderating tonight's program with Bay Area digital pioneer, Dr. Alvy Ray-Smith. Dr. Smith is the co-founder of the digital media company Pixar, which is now a subsidiary of Disney, and he was also played a significant role at Lucasfilm. He thus played a critical role in the development of digital animation, which has revolutionized movie making over the last few decades. Dr. Smith is here tonight to discuss his fascinating new book, A Biography of the Pixel. Pixels, of course, have transformed our understanding of our visual culture, and that's a really important subject in the digital age. And we could not have a better guest than Dr. Smith to educate us on the history of this topic. This program, of course, is virtual, but the club has also started doing safe in-person programs at our headquarters in San Francisco. To learn more about upcoming programs or how to become a member of the club, go to www.commonwealthclub.org. One quick important housekeeping tip before we get started with today's discussion. If you have a question for Dr. Smith, please use the YouTube chat feature Questions asked there will be submitted throughout the program, and I will try to ask as many of them as I can after Dr. Smith gives us a presentation on the history of the pixel. Dr. Smith, welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'll turn the program over to you now for your presentation. All right. I'm very pleased to be here, John. I'm going to start up my um, presentation. Lots of pictures, mostly. Okay. So I've been working on this book for about 10 years. And it's all based on the observation that, well, a couple of things. One, nearly all pictures in the world are now digital. And that's a vast number of pictures. I don't know about you, but I have about a billion pixels in my cell phone, and I bet you do too. In fact, nearly because of the digital explosion, nearly all pictures that have ever existed are now digital. You have to go to museums or kindergartens to find uh, the old analog uh, version of pictures. Even though we are swimming, each all of us human beings are swimming in a vast ocean of pixels. Um, I estimate a zettapixel. That's a one followed by 21 zeros. Very few people know what a pixel is. And I think you'll understand why after I give my short explanation. And if they do, if people do think they know what it is, they usually have the wrong idea. They think it's a little square, for example. That's a very common misunderstanding. So I wrote this book. and. Along the way, I discovered all kinds of unexpected things. Let me just leap into one of them. This guy, Vladimir Kotelnikov, a Russian, a communist, 
is the person who invented the pixel, basically. In America, we were always taught that it was Claude Shannon who, who proved the basic theorem on which the modern media world is, is based. It's called the sampling theorem. But when I started my research for the book, I discovered that Claude Shannon never even claimed he had done it. He just said it's in the air. So I finally discovered it was this guy, Vladimir Kotelnikov. This is a picture of him in about 19, as a young man in about 1933 when he wrote this article. Now, I don't read Russian, but I can read the math. And the math is exactly the sampling theorem as I use it today, including all the nuances. Those nuances are important in the, in the, in the claim game. So this man left, led a fascinating life, and my chapter two is all about him. One of the stories I don't want to tell because it's so, it's so interesting. He lived through the entire Soviet nightmare. He was born before the Russian Revolution. He went through World War I, the Russian Revolution, the Civil Wars afterwards, World War II, the Cold War. And he was the master cryptographer, basically, for the Soviet Union. He Twice, the KGB or the forerunner of the KGB tried to throw him into the gulag, the, the, the system of prisons. He was saved both times by a woman, a protectress. Her name was Valeria Golubsova. And the reason she could protect him was her family was personal friends with Lenin. And she herself was married to Malenkov, Georgi Malenkov, who was the person who took over when Stalin died as premier of Soviet Russia, just as murderous as Stalin. That's, that was his protectress. And this is the last picture I have of, of Kotelnikov. He's, got, he's wearing every merit. This is the 70th, on the 70th anniversary of the proof of the theorem. He's standing in the Kremlin with Putin. He's, uh, Kotelnikov is, is wearing all the merit badges of the Soviet Union, the orders of Lenin and Stalin, the red this, the red that. And he's being, for lack of a better word, knighted or chevalier or cavaliered with one of the highest honors in the, in the Soviet Union. So in order to tell you what, he, what this theorem is, which is basically the definition of pixel, I have to step, oh, I want you to remember this shape, that, that hump with the wiggles off to the side. We'll come back to that later. It's called a spreader. I have to back up to the French Revolution to really get this thing going. This is my chapter one, basically, to Joseph Fourier. Now, nearly everybody in the sciences and technologies knows about Fourier. You probably, those, those of us in science and technology probably used his theorem today. It's, it's, it's one of the working workhorses of, of the modern world of technology and science. What is it? Well, basically, well, before, I, before I say anything about what he actually proved, let me just say he's an interesting guy, too. He was in the French Revolution. He was a revolutionary, but he became afoul of Robespierre and almost had his head guillotined. He was only saved by... Robespierre losing his head 10 days earlier. Then our fellow Joseph Fourier here went off to Egypt with his new friend, Napoleon Bonaparte, and was on the expedition that discovered the Rosetta Stone. And uh, later in life, he mentored a young man named Champignon, who 
deciphered the hieroglyphics using the Rosetta Stone. Fascinating story in and of itself. But he was exiled. So Napoleon exiled Fourier to Grenoble. He made him the governor of the province, or the prefect of the prefecture is the actual wording, to keep him out of Paris because Fourier had seen the military mistakes that Napoleon had made in Egypt, and Napoleon didn't want him in Paris telling anybody. So he exiled him to Grenoble, where Fourier mastered his famous theorem. What is this theorem? Well, basically, Fourier said, and I think this is where people's intuition comes to play. I think everybody is, is aware that music is a sum of simultaneous sound waves at different frequencies and different amplitudes. And I'm showing a picture here of three of, of Fourier's waves that differ only, and they all look the same, except they vary in how high they are. That's the amplitude, how loud they are in case of sound, and how fast they wiggle, frequency. So Fourier said, well, all music is a sum of waves. You can just add waves together. Even though they're regular waves, you can get any music out of them. And he went further than that. He said, you can get any sound. Here's the word yes, the English word yes, in frequencies versus time going to the right. The first part of the word yes is the accented part, and the right part of the word is the high frequency, the hiss, the s at the end of yes. Then, but he went further. He says it's it can be two-dimensional. If you extrude those smooth waves at the top right out toward you, you get and swing up and look down on them, you get corrugations. You'll notice the uh, edge is one of Fourier's smooth one-dimensional waves. In fact, any straight line cut is such a wave. And if you come up and look down on these corrugations, you get this representation of his waves. So these are like two-dimensional Fourier waves. Fourier said, all pictures can be made as a sum of these waves. For example, this picture of my son, back in the days before Return of the Jedi got renamed, Re Revenge of the Jedi got renamed Return of the Jedi. Or this sort of silly picture of Napoleon. Now that that's enough. So the fact that anything can be represented, any smooth thing like sound and pictures can be represented as a sum of waves is the initial starting point for what Kotelnikov did. So we're getting closer to what a pixel is. Consider this as a sound. It's a you can think of it as a straight line across as the zero sound level, zero loudness. And this is the amplitude of a sound signal in time, times proceeding to the right. Fourier told us that any such signal is a sum of his regular waves. Kotelnikov came along in 1933 and said, find the highest Fourier frequency in a signal. I contend it's this one because nothing in the given signal wiggles faster than this particular Fourier wave. Kotelnikov said, find the highest Fourier frequency in your signal and put a dot regularly spaced along this given signal at twice that frequency. So that's what the big dots represent. Now here's, stay tuned because here's where it starts getting surprising. He says, Kotelnikov proved the sampling theorem, which says you can throw away the given signal between the dots and just save the, we call them samples, at the dots 
and you lose nothing. Now think about that for a moment. I've just said you can throw away the infinity of information between sample points and not lose anything. What? Really? That's the theorem. It's a mind blower. I think you can see where I'm heading that we call the samples when the signal is a picture, we call the samples pixels. Pixels are samples. The other half of the sampling theorem is, okay, so you've got a set of samples. How do you get back to the original signal? You've just told me that the samples are an exact representation of the original signal. How do we get it back? So let's start with those samples. Remember that wiggly shape in Koteldikov's 1933 paper that I asked you to remember? There's one thing wrong with this this uh, spreader, as I call it. It, it. It's infinitely wide. Those ripples go off to infinity in both directions. Well, in the real world, we can't use infinitely wide things. So we replace it with a, an equ that's not an equivalent, but it's a really good approximation that goes to zero very rapidly, and it's got a finite width. Now, there's still an infinity of points between the two endpoints, the two non-zero endpoints. Okay, take this spreader shape. This is Koteldnikov's theorem. Take your samples, take this shape, put a copy of it at each sample, adjust the height so it matches the height of the sample, add up the results. That bold curve at the top is the original is the original signal back. It just it just seems like you've thrown away the infinite amount of information. But by a clever use of mathematics, the spreader has added the infinity back. It, it takes mathematics to actually believe this is, is the truth, but it is. It's an amazing, amazing theorem. The whole modern world is built on it. Here's the, now I really wanna talk about the case of pictures and 2D sampling. So here's what the spreader function looks like uh, for pixels, for, for pictures. I'm going to drop a guillotine, so to speak, right through its peak, and you'll see that the bleeding edge is that same hump with the, the negative lobes. And here is a picture of a single pixel, a sample at a point, being spread by the spreader into something that we can actually see. So let's stop for a moment. I know this has been probably a little, a little technical, but I've not mentioned the word square once. There's no little square anywhere in the definition of pixel. <laughs> Pixels have never been squares. In a moment, we'll talk about where that misperception came from. A pixel is a sample at a point. Well, a point has zero dimensions. You can't see a point. You can't see a sample. The only thing you can see is a spread pixel, spread by a spreader. Here, here's the connection I want you to make. On your cell phone, you've got all these billions of pixels stored in files on your cell phone. If you want to see the picture those pixels represent, you ask the cell phone, the computer at your cell phone, really, to show you the picture. And almost instantaneously, because the computers are that fast now, the spreading happens and you see the picture that those pixels represent. You don't see the pixels. You see the soft, glowy spots on the display of your cell phone which just happen to have a spreader shape. And you add those, add those up and you get back the original pic, uh, picture that the pixels represent. Again, no little squares. So where did this 
where did this little square notion come from? And I've got a couple of, of uh, arguments about why it's so prevalent. One is, is that, especially in the early days of computers and computer pictures, people thought that pictures mediated by computers had to be rigid and 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 linear and jaggy and blocky and and mechanical because computers were everybody's intuition of computers what the was that they were rigid and linear and mechanical and of course that's just not true a computer is the most malleable instrument the humankind ever invented it can do anything so it's just you know the little the fact that people had it in their head that since a computer did it, it must be the little blocks. That's one argument for why we came up with a pixelated idea, which is just not true. All right, another, maybe even more important reason we think of the little squares is I, I, can, I can show you. Here's a picture of 14 pixels that I made using Photoshop. What you're seeing here, of course, is not the pixels, it's the spread pixels uh, for the display that we're now using. If I Nearly every app in existence and every display has a feature called Zoom these days. Suppose I use Zoom, I, the Zoom on Photoshop, for example, suppose I wanted to Zoom by 20, I get this picture. Now, you might think that you've just zoomed in by a factor of 20 on that picture, the original picture, but no, you haven't. It's a dirty trick. Each pixel has been replicated 20 times horizontally and each row has been rep replicated 20 times vertically, the result of, of which is that each pixel got replaced by a square array of 20 by 20 pixels. And when that's spread, you get, what a surprise, a little square. But that's not a picture of a pixel up close. It's a dirty trick that ought to go away because it never was right, and it's it gives everybody the wrong idea. Let's look at that same picture and 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 zoom in on it correctly. Also using Photoshop and uh, image size being the correct way to zoom in on a, a pixel picture. And you get this picture. You can you can think of the, each of those soft spots as looking down on one of those little mountains that I showed you earlier. And there they overlap, and they you can't quite tell, but they they go off. You know they intersect nearby pixels. So I, th I think that Zoom feature is one really strong reason people just sort of think that pixelation is, is what computer pictures are all about. Not so. Okay. By the way, the sampling theorem and Fourier, and Fourier transforms are all expressed typically like on Wikipedia in this obscure looking mathematics. So what I did with my book was strip away the mathematics mathematical obfuscation and just describe the intuition underneath. In both cases, the intuition is really simple and it's beautiful. It's how our modern world works. So now it's time to introduce the computer because it's the computer that makes it really work. The computer came along in 1936. Remember, Kotelnikov came along in 1933. So sampling met computation and conceived digital light. Is, is my wording, where I, by the word digital light, I mean all pictures for whatever purpose made of pixels. That includes uh, photo, uh, uh, videos from the, the rover on Mars, 
from the space station, any picture you take with your cell phone, any video you take, all digital movies, dashboard on my Tesla, parking meters now have, have, have digital displays, uh, video games, uh, virtual reality, you know, Zoom. It's all pixels now. It's all pixels. It's all part of digital light. That's the vast, vast domain that I'm talking about in this book. One of the things I discovered putting the book together was that people, that the received history is often wrong. In fact, I was dismayed at how often that was true. Um, And I think it's because we're, we're all suckers for the simple narrative. We want a single creative human being to have come up with the grand idea from which all, all else flows. And in high technology, that's just, that's just never the case. In fact, I, I claim that the word high, if you if one person is, if one person is said to be the father of such and such, it's probably not true if you're talking about high technology. There are a few counterexamples in my book. One of them is this guy on the left, Alan Turing, who single-handedly invented the computer. And I show this in my chapter three. And when I say computer, I'm very careful to define it to be an electronic stored program computer. You can't just be a big machine made of vacuum tubes that does arithmetic. That's not a computer. It has to be programmable and it has to be fast. I mean, the whole purpose of computers is they've got to be fast. The machine that Alan Turing invented was on paper, and it was awesomely slow. And he was one of the first people to say, okay, we've got to, we've got to put this into electronics and make, make computers go fast. Now, he failed. It's one of his few failures. He failed to, to build uh, an electronic computer. I mean, he, he, it happened, but it, it took many years for his, his, his ace to become a real machine. Uh, in America, I like the picture on the right because at the very back is John von Neumann. So this is at the edge of the Grand Canyon. John von Neumann is the only guy wearing a three-piece business suit on a mule facing bass ass backwards on, you know, from everybody else. This is one of the great geniuses of the world. Uh, von Neumann was one of the few guys smart enough to know what what Alan Turing had done. And he, he uh, was responsible for the architecture for many of the early machines. I'm spending some time on this. You'll see why in just a moment, the history of computers. Uh, in order to tell these stories in a way much, much better than a simple narrative, I've come up with the, these, I call them family charts or flow charts. It's all the people and ideas and computers and machines and how they interact with each other. It's, it's, it's really more like a family tree than it is a simple narrative story. It's a way to see who influenced whom and, and how all the, all the parts work together at the same time. And there's hardly ever a straight path through. In this case, at the very top, we have Alan Turing and John von Neumann, who, in a sense, intellectually did follow the whole computer world. But quickly, it, uh, a whole set of computers, you can see them running across the center of the slide, Pilot Ace, Baby, Edsac, ENIAC, Zephyr, and so forth, came into existence. And the, the two I'm going to spend time on here are Baby, 1948, and The Whirlwind in 1950 or so. 
you'll notice at the bottom for under Whirlwind is all modern computer graphics descends from here. Okay. So when I visited Baby in Manchester, so Baby's the first computer. 1948. It's kind of nice to name Baby, huh? Was built in Manchester, England by a couple of engineers. And when I went to visit Baby, actually it's a replica built it's an exact replica built for the 50th anniversary of Baby. Baby greeted me with this display. Pixels, obviously, but more importantly, the word Pixar was scrolling to the right. Not only, not only did Baby, the first computer, have pixels, which amazed me. I had no idea. But it could animate. At the time, everybody thought making pictures was forbidden, was a was a misuse of this precious thing called a computer. And some of the old engineers said, even if I made a pictures on these, these Alvi, I wouldn't have told you. It's forbidden. That was frivolous. But luckily, one of the original engineers did take a picture, and this is the first digital picture, 1947. Actually, Baby wasn't quite complete when he took this picture. That's I call it first light. Then I found the first interactive game also in Manchester, and then the second or third one in, in Cambridge. These, these are in the early 50s. And then I started, then I happened onto the archive for the Whirlwind machine in, uh, uh, in Bedford, Mass. And it was, it was an awesome afternoon I spent there looking at some. Now, this is the first time where people did make pictures on purpose. They didn't feel like it was frivolous. It was say, oh, boy, we've got a new thing going here. And they started making pictures. The, the main thing I want to point out is I found the first animations. Uh, Edward R. Murrow's show in 1951 had an actual pixel animation showing. You can still see it on YouTube now. This is all in the early 50s. Now, here I am, a guy. I was born before computers. I've watched the whole computer graphics thing happen. I, I'm surprised at what I didn't know. I didn't know the history of computers. I didn't know. I thought. Computer graphics started somewhere in the 60s, and I'll get back to that in a moment. But no, it started a decade earlier. And not only that, but there were games, and there were animations. There were everything. Not very pretty. No color, you'll notice. But it was, it was, the field was underway. So that's one of the things I'm trying to capture in my book is the actual history. I'm sort of surprised that it's taken this long to put it, for somebody to put it together. And here's the second flow chart. Uh, this box is repeated from the previous flowchart. So these flowcharts kind of string together in time. Uh, again, there's way too much detail on those for, for a talk like today, but I just want to pick out a few of the groups here. This group of old uh, founding pioneers of our field actually never made pictures. They made objects. They made cars and airplanes. Their output, is, you can think of their output display as being actual objects. So they're the fathers, in a sense, of computer graphics, but really more of computer-aided design. Another interesting group is this set that I call Save from the Nazis. It includes Herbert Freeman, who was uh, my first boss out when I graduated from Stanford and took a job at NYU. Come to find out, he had been saved from the Nazis by none other than Albert Einstein, who wrote three letters to save the kid in 1938. And the, the fellow on the right, Marcelli Wine, 
was saved from the Warsaw Ghetto as his father got marched off to Auschwitz by his father shoving him off into the crowd and a Catholic woman grabbed the child and, and raised him as a Catholic. And he, Marcelli, was later rejoined his father who survived Auschwitz because he was a master tailor and he was number five on Schindler's list. Some great stories here. But I want to concentrate right now on these three guys, Ivan Sutherland, Timothy Johnson, Lawrence Roberts, all at MIT in the early 60s. Here they are. In my, the, the received version of computer graphics was that uh, Ivan Sutherland wrote Sketchpad in about 62 or 63, and all the computer graphics descended from him. Well, it turns out that's not quite the story. There was another program written almost simultaneously by an, a classmate of Ivan's named Tim Johnson. That's him in the center there. He wrote a program called Sketchpad 3, the 3 standing for 3D. Turns out that Sketchpad that Ivan wrote was 2D. Tim Johnson wrote Sketchpad 3, which was interactive, 3D, and it had perspective in it. The perspective being provided by the guy on the right, Larry Roberts who added the, the, uh, the way of doing perspective that we still use in computer graphics today. Now, Ivan gets most of the credit. Poor Tim Johnson never got any of the credit, and I think you can see why. He and Ivan Sutherland look almost identical. In fact, if you go out on the Internet today and look up Ivan Sutherland, I did this just the other day, over 60% of the pictures, you know, you can click on images under Google's, Google search, click on images. Over 60% of the images claiming to be Ivan Sutherland at the controls of, of Sketchpad were actually Tim Johnson at the controls of Sketchpad 3. So I, I, I said, I asked him, I said, what about that? He said, well, what can I do, Alvy? You know, I've lived my whole life now without that, without that acclaim. So I said, well, I'm going to try to turn it around. The guy on the right, Larry Roberts, also didn't get as much credit as I think he deserves from the computer graphics world. But he said before he recently died uh, that, you know, Alvy, I got so much credit being one of the fathers of the Internet that I could care less, basically, that I didn't get credit from the from the computer graphics world. I'm going to skip that and go right straight to the central dogma. Basically, Tim Johnson, the guy in the center, and Larry Roberts created what I call the central dogma of computer graphics. It's sort of an unspoken dogma that says, we will render models, we will make models of the world inside a computer using Euclidean geometry, and we will look at those models uh, in two dimensions using uh, Renaissance perspective. And later on, I'm gonna add Newtonian physics. Now there's nothing about computers that restricts us to Euclidean geometry and Renaissance perspective. But that, that symphonic form, if you will, is what nearly all computer graphics confines itself to today. Every Pixar movie is made inside the central dogma. All right, so far we've talked about um, Epic One, I call it. There's Baby at the lower left, uh, 1948. Epic Two began in 1965 with Moore's Law. Moore's Law is one of the most amazing engineering triumphs of all time. Now I'd like to register that with you. Moore's law is the supernova dynamo of energy that has powered the entire modern digital world 
throughout my entire career, your career, and the careers of those yet to come for, for the foreseeable future. Well, Moore himself, it's not really a law, by the way, but it's usually called Moore's Law. Moore expressed his law in this uh, not unintuitive way. The density of chip components on an integrated circuit chip will double every year and a half or so. I changed that to what I think is a more intuitive form. Everything good about computers gets better by an order of magnitude every five years. Mathematically, it's the same. And uh, I contend that everything good about computers is linearly related to the increased density on an integrated circuit chip. So this is the same, same law, but in an easier to remember form. And I use the term order of magnitude for a factor of 10, because an order of magnitude is about what we human beings can, we, we can think through an order of magnitude change, but we're no good beyond that. So what Moore's law basically says is, starting in 1965, every five years, we're gonna improve by an order of magnitude. One of those order of magnitude limits, we're gonna hit one of those every five years. So when I made my first computer graphic image in 1965, Moore's Law was one. Today, whoops, let me back that up. Today we're sitting at 100 billion X, a Moore's Law factor of 100 billion. And in just a few years, 2025, it will hit 1 trillion. I can say these numbers to you, but I don't think you you grasp in fact by the the very notion of order of magnitude you don't grasp what i've just said 12 orders of magnitude have passed since 1965 basically the only way to understand what that means is just to get there and figure out what it means by what happens when you're there and that includes the guys designing the chips they can't figure out how to make the chips denser until they get to the last order of magnitude and then they figure out how to go the next step this is my homage to Moore's Law. I can't overstate its importance. It's driven everything. And it's all done by engineers and it's a, it is awesomely creative event. All right, so you can see that the charts are getting thicker and thicker and thicker because they're exploding with Moore's Law too. I, I'm just gonna, there's Ivan Sutherland and Herbert Freeman from the preceding chart showing how it connects I'm gonna pick out these three guys who brought us color pixels. I'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, the group from the University of Utah, which contributed my, amongst many other uh, geniuses to the world of computer graphics, uh, my partner at Pixar, Ed Catmull. Uh, the Xerox Park group where I got my start and how these all came together to do the to to form the New York Institute of Technology Lucasfilm Pixar family but the same you know the reason again these are not single narratives They're, these same threads came together in different ways to form Pacific Data Images which became DreamWorks and also the group Blue Sky and it was those three companies Pixar DreamWorks and Blue Sky who at the millennium the recent millennium produce digital movies for the first time. And, I, and I, I think of those digital movies as being the flags that signified the arrival of what I call the great digital convergence, where all old analog media types got replaced 
by the single digital. So here are some early examples. Uh, this is from 1972. I'm, I'm, I'm mixing this, the, the, the timeline up a little bit. Uh, Ed Catmull's hand, Fred Park, his classmate at the University of Utah did a face. And it was some of the first, it was the, the first shaded graphics movies, 1972, very low res. Also, also in 1972, uh, the Cornell group under Don Greenberg made the first color movie with shaded graphics. So 1972, was that the earliest color pixels? You notice there haven't been any color pixels up till now. Well, I, one of the fascinating, one of the, one of my lucky breaks in life is that my friend Dick Schaup built a program at Xerox Palo Alto Research Center called SuperPaint, and he knew I was an artist. I liked to paint with oils, and when I saw his machine, I realized I wanted to combine art with, with computers. And I thought for a long time that SuperPaint at Xerox Park in the early 70s had the first color pixels, even though Dick kept telling me he didn't think it was so. So as, as one of the things I, I did for this, this um, um, book was search out the first color pixels. Another thing Dick Shop did was he anti-aliased. One of the things that's hard to get across to people is you could represent straight lines with pixels, with samples. If you don't do it right, you get ugliness, as on the left side here. We call it the jaggies. With all those stair steps, you can't look at it. It's so ugly. But Dick showed that if you did sampling correctly, if you applied the sampling theory correctly, you could use a pixel display to render beautiful images. Something I'd like you, for you to think about is uh, when you're watching television, do you see the wheels on cars go backwards? I see it all the time. It just drives me crazy. But my wife says she never sees it. And I, th if she, I have to assume that if you don't see the wheels going backwards or the wrong speed, it must be because you've just seen it so often, you just filter it out. But by the very nature of digital video, the, the wheels can't, the speed of the wheels can't be represented correctly. I'm not going to talk about that today, but just think about it. Do, the, do you see the wheels go backwards? All right. The results of um, my research were that I found the first color pixels. They were part of the Apollo Moon Project. Uh, I mentioned earlier two, two engineers named Rod Rugelow and, and Bob Schumacher built this machine. They built a simulator for the lunar module at General Electric in upstate New York for NASA Houston. And this is one of the pictures off of that first color pixel screen. Now, this was buried in old tech memoranda that nobody got to see. There was no journal that announced this result of the world. And since it was just for people at NASA, very few people even knew it, it, it had happened. But I sat down with these two guys there in their 80s in Salt Lake City, and we spent seven and a half glorious hours together. And we found the point the day that this picture is, happened in 1967 when they first not only showed color pixels, but shaded graphics, color shaded graphics being rendered. So that was uh, quite a few years earlier than, than I knew, 67. So it's all, you know, this, the Pixar world, it all happened since then, really. I told you I was at Xerox Park. Xerox Park decided they, well, they fired me, just to be honest. They because and I said why? They said, well, we've decided not to do color. And I said, well, but 
color's the future. You you own it completely. And they said, you may be right, Alvy, but we've decided corporate decision to go black and white. So I said, okay, bye. And I went in search of the next color memory. Dick Shalp had built the first one and found the next one at this place on Long Island. It's called the New York Institute of Technology. It was it's a fabulous, it's a, it's a collection of estates with mansions as its buildings. This is one of the, this is the video mansion. We did computer graphics on another mansion and I lived in a third mansion and my girlfriend lived in a fourth mansion. It was all mansions I could believe. I felt like I was in a movie every day. So this is, this is called the D. Saversky mansion, named for this fellow, Alexander D. Saversky, who was a Russian aristocrat who got booted out of Russia in the Russian Revolution. He came to America and started Republic Aviation, became extremely wealthy, and he wrote a book called Victory Through Air Power, which inspired the United States to create an air force. And Walt Disney was impressed by that book, and he turned it into a propaganda film uh, by the same name, Victory Through Air Power. So when Disney, when it premiered in New York City, the Disney family came out and stayed with the DeSaversky family, and that's how they got to know each other. The person at New York Tech who hired me was this Alexander, Alexander Schur. Now, the one part, the one part of the, the history I've not been able to put together is how did these two guys come together? One is a, a, a Russian aristocrat, very wealthy. Alexander Schur is a Russian, a Jewish immigrant. So a, a, he's also from Russia, but a, a Jewish immigrant, uh, middle class. How did these two guys come together? I, I have not solved that piece, but they did. They started this place called New York Institute of Technology, and the, the fanciest mansion on the campus is named for Dysaversky. But I think this is why Alexander Schur thought he might be the next Disney. We, en we ended up there helping animators with the old-fashioned cell animation project. The one thing that Alexander Schur did was he bought us the first full-color pixels in the world. By that, I mean... So at Xerox Park we had eight bits for each pixel. That meant 256 colors. You can't do much with 256 colors. Sure came to me one night and he said, "Do we have the best graphics in the world?" I said, "Yeah." He says, "What do we have to do to stay ahead?" I said, "Well, if you buy us two more of these eight-bit color memories, I can gang them together to make a 24-bit, 16 million color memory." not knowing if he actually understood what I was saying. And by the way, that, that first memory had cost him $80,000 in the 70s. Well, a few weeks later, he walks in. He says, hey, I bought you five more of those 8-bit thingies, so you'd have two of those 24-bit thingies. In today's dollars, he just said, I spent $2 bucks on your say-so. And I was too naive at the time to know how amazing that event was. I only can understand it in retrospect. But we went crazy. We had the first full color in the world and we were making art as fast as we could. This is a small sampling. Um, also, I met the fellow Ed Catmull here and he and I invented the Alpha Channel because we, 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 we had so much memory, we could think about adding a fourth channel to pictures. And that's now the universal way of combining pictures. We tried to help the animators out using, a, Ed, Ed wrote a program to try to help them with their two-dimensional in-betweening, but it turned out to be too hard for them. In fact, it was too hard for us. 
And that's when we discovered that three-dimensional animation was actually easier than two-dimensional animation. One of the things that happened to me at this fabulous place was I met Ed Emschweller, one of the, one of and my artistic mentor. He and I worked together on a piece called Sunstone that I'm still extremely proud of. It's in the Museum of Modern Art in New York, their collection. But Alexander Schur really didn't have what it takes to be a movie producer, even though he wanted to be. So when George Lucas gave us the call, we leapt out to Marin County, joined George. And uh, it turns out, I thought George wanted us to be in his movies, but it turns out, no, he just wanted us to do the hardware and software for the movies. That was a great vision, and he should be honored for that vision. But um, it wasn't until Paramount showed up to do Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, not a, not a George Lucas movie, that we got our chance to show George what we could really do. And uh, I directed our group in our first outing on the big screen, a short piece called Genesis Demo for Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. It was the the idea was to have a camera move in it so so complex that no real camera could possibly have done it, but it wouldn't appear gratuitous to the to the theater audience. Only George Lucas would notice that it was an impossible to do shot, and he did. He came in the day after the premiere and said, "Great camera shot," and had us in his next movie in nineteen eighty. Three, uh, okay, so every year there's this big conference called SIGGRAPH where we show off what we've done to all our all our contemporaries in computer graphics. Coming back from the 1983 SIGGRAPH, Ed Catmull and I decided that at the 1984 SIGGRAPH, we would announce to the world that we did character animation, not, not space operas, but character animation, which is what each of us had always wanted to do. And I immediately started sketching storyboards for what became Entree and Wally B. Luckily, lucky for me, I also we also hired John Lasseter, who is a world-class animator, and he basically saved my bacon on this piece um, by making Andre. Uh, uh, well, I thought I was going to be the animator, but it turns out I I don't have that skill. That's a special special skill in the world that very few people have. It's like acting. They can't explain, actors can't explain to you how they do it. They just do it. Animators can't explain how, what do they do? What do animators do? They make you believe that a stack of polygons is conscious. How do they do that? They can't tell you. They just do it. So technologically, what you see here on these, this is four successive frames of Andre and Wally B showing that we had mastered motion blur, which is essential to the success of movies. And then in 1984, one of our resident geniuses, Tom Porter, generated this picture, which we had to tell people was fake. But it illustrated to the world that we had mastered technologically everything that we needed to to be on the big screen. Uh, what we were missing was horsepower, computing horsepower. And this is the point where the central dogma gets augmented to include Newtonian physics. Again, there's no reason that computers have to honor Newtonian physics, but we do. We thought we were going to make the first movie with a Japanese firm based on the monkey stories, The Monkey King. And John Lasseter started drawing character studies, and we did marketing studies. 
And we got far enough along on the project that I said, okay, I've got to sit down and figure out what to charge this company. And once I did, I realized, oh, Moore's Law hasn't arrived yet. And this, and I had to back out of the project. We needed another order of magnitude. We needed five more years of Moore's Law before we could make a movie. Now, this is important because right then was when George and Marshall Lucas got divorced. And in other words, George lost half his fortune overnight because California law, community property. I went into Ed's office. I said, Ed, you know, we're going to get fired. George never really understood what we were, and he doesn't have enough money to support us. Now, this is two computer nerds talking to each other. And I said, why don't we start a company so that we don't lose this world-class group of 40 geniuses? And he agreed, and we went across the street to a bookstore in Marin County and each bought two different books on how to start companies. And uh, the amazing thing is that it worked, but it was it was hard. Um, we went through 35 venture capital firms who all turned us down. And then we went through eight large corporations who turned us down. And then we almost closed a deal with General Motors and Phillips of the Netherlands. And the only reason that failed at the very last moment was that we were dealing with uh, was because we were dealing with H. Ross Perot, and he insulted the board of directors of General Motors about the same day. And basically, we got we were the baby that got thrown out with the bathwater. At that at this point, Ed and I are frantic, and we decide to do a hail mary. We'll call Steve Jobs, and. Um, we knew Steve because he had already invited, he had been thrown out of Apple already. He and he, he invited us to come down to his Woodside mansion. And uh, he had this idea that he would buy us from, from Lucas and run us. And we went, no, we want to run our own company, but we'll accept your investment. And he said, okay. But what he offered for an investment was about half of what General Motors and Phillips were, were, argue, were, were offering. But at this point, the General Motors-Phillips deal, having failed, Ed and I says, let's just, let's call Steve and say, Steve, make your offer again. The one that's half the value of General Motors, just make it again. We think General Lucas will go for it. And they did. And so that's how we got Steve Jobs to be our venture capitalist. He did not buy us. That's a mistake. He, he did not buy Pixar. He, he capitalized the spin out company. He was our majority shareholder. Uh, the, the rest of the stock was owned by the, by the employees of the company. This is the set of founding documents of Pixar. And for five years, we suffered because we weren't, you know, we already, Ed and I already knew we couldn't be a movie company. We, were, we had to wait five years for Moore's Law to catch up. Steve Jobs wasn't a movie guy. He was a hardware guy. So we were building hardware. We were a hardware company for five years and we weren't, we failed. Several times we failed. In other words, we ran out of money. We couldn't pay anybody. Uh, but luckily, we had this. We had Steve Jobs as an investor. He could not withstand the embarrassment of a failure after Apple. So he would tear Ed and me apart, but he would always write another check and take away equity. Until eventually, over three or four years, he did own Pixar. And tyrants serve a, serve a role all through high technology. And in this case, his role was to fund us. Even though I think his uh, motivations were entirely wrong, he funded us during this five years when we had to stay alive. But at the end of that five years, Moore's Law had gotten there. Disney stepped forward and said, let's make that movie you guys always wanted to make. 
will pay for it. And they basically saved saved the financial situation. Steve went took the company public, which was a brilliant move, and became a billionaire overnight. And we got the first movie. So I think I will close there and open it up to Q&A. There are about a, uh, 100 different directions I could go. I'm really curious to see what you might ask. Thank you, uh, Alvi, for that fascinating history. I learned a lot, and I'm sure everybody in, in the audience did too. And we'll jump into some questions. We don't have a lot of time, uh, but before we ask the questions, I do want to thank you for color. Thank you for not staying at Xerox and putting color on our screens uh, and also for animation because they've both been just major, major uh, breakthroughs. One of the things I wanted to ask, and I think a lot of us are probably taking this away from your presentation, is that we all think we have hundreds and thousands of photos on these devices. Uh, and we, I think we think of them as photos, like you know, a photo used to be that you developed from a negative. But in fact, we don't have photos on there. What we have are a bunch of pixels or samples that end up getting spread and form an image when we call it up, but it's so fast that I just thought that was, that's an amazing thing. Those, those photos <laughs> really aren't in photos, there. Right? And I'm sure everybody, <laughs> everybody thinks are, they are. One, one question is, how did, you, how did the book end up coming out now? And, and, and why do you think it's important that the book's coming out now? Well, just because I finished it now, not meaning to be cute, but it took me 10 years and I just finished it. That's why now is because that's how I got here. And a lot happened in the 10 years, because if you think of 10 years ago, we didn't have uh, screens in our cars, for example. That's right. And by the way, I my book goes from Fourier in about 1780s, 1789's French Revolution, to the year 2000 when the great digital convergence happened. But of course... Moore's law has cranked out 10,000 more, a factor of 10,000 more since in the last 20 years. So I had to have a closing chapter that basically said, here's, here are some of the things that have happened since. Um, one of the things I personally am interested in is uh, virtual reality. Uh, I'm an advisor to a little startup company in Silicon Valley called Baobab Studios, who want to be the Pixar of virtual reality, for example. Uh, mostly to keep my hands into that wonderful spirit of the, uh, of the entrepreneurial group of young people. Yeah. What do you think makes it important for, I mean, I learned a lot with how far I've gotten in the book and from tonight's presentation. Why do you think it's important that we sort of understand the building blocks of, of the technology that we're using and sort of how we got here? That's a, that's a great question. John, I, one of my motivations was, is it people, I think people feel estranged from digital. They, they, they don't understand it. Uh, they think it's sort of approximate maybe instead of the real thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and I wanted to get across, no, it's, it's really the set of fundamental ideas are beautiful and there's nothing approximate about digital. It's, it's as exact as the theorem lets us get. Since it's our world, we're we're a swim in this zettapixel ocean. Then, if we just sort of understand a little bit about how it works, that should increase our love of life. Just like you know, I, I liken it to a music appreciation course. You go to, I took one in college. I've never forgotten it. It, it, it I can't I can't write a, a a cello suite. You know, a Bach cello suite, but I can I can truly appreciate Bach 
amazingly much more after I took the course. I sort of think of this as a, a life appreciation course book. You know, you can appreciate the world you live in. You know, given coups and COVID, this is like a positive contribution. Right. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense because I can't write a computer program, but I really appreciated understanding where all this, this comes from. Uh, give us, if you could, uh, in the last few minutes that we have, what do you think is coming next? If, if you were to continue this story into the future, uh, where are we going from here? Okay. All right. Let me just point out that the whole point, the whole idea of Moore's Law is you can't predict where it's going. It's, you can't, or another way to say it is if you can look a order of magnitude of heads, you can probably be a billionaire. I can tell you what the size of the number is going to be. I can tell you that in 2025, Moore's Law is going to reach 1 trillion. You know, everything about computers will be 1 trillion times better than they were in 65. But I don't know what that means. And I don't think anybody does and won't know until we get there. But you can see, you can see some of the paths that are, are unwinding right now. Uh, well, there's, there was this engine that came out last year called the Unreal Engine, which can can render in real time, you know, let's call that 30 frames a second, pictures of a complexity that we only talked about in our dreams back in the early days at Lucasfilm. And we we might spend 30 hours generating a picture with with 80 million polygons in it. Unreal can do it in real time. I'm, you know, I, I knew Moore's law was going to give us that, but now that it's arrived, I'm still mind blown. I can't put my mind around it. Well, after, after people sit with that for 10 years, what are they going to come out with next? I don't know. I'm pretty excited. By the way, people keep saying Moore's law is dead. I said, no, it's not. The engineers have to get to this order of magnitude before they can figure out how to get to the next order of magnitude. In fact, just a few months ago, IBM announced a new two nanometer technology down from five nanometers. I mean, nanometer, that's a billionth of a meter and it's still going. So I, I, I've, I've heard Moore's law pronounced dead three or four times in my life. I, I don't believe it yet. We'll see. All right. Well, we're going to be watching. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today's program. I want to thank Dr. Alvy Ray Smith for joining us for today's Commonwealth Club program and encourage viewers to purchase Dr. Smith's new book, a biography of the pixel, wherever books are sold. This program will soon be placed on the Commonwealth Club website at www.commonwealthclub.org, and we encourage you to view it and share it with your personal networks. I'm John Boland, and this Commonwealth Club program is now adjourned. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.